0: Now, I want you to notice the title of the message, God's Grace Abounding. The word grace is actually not used in this passage. But you could write the word grace. In fact, you could write wave upon wave of grace. You could write grace abounding to sinners over all of this passage today. So remember that a few centuries before, The people of God, Israel, Judah, were in a spiritual decline. They were in rebellion against God in some shocking ways. In their hearts, they had no love or loyalty to God. The remnant did, but by and large, the nation had gone its own way. In their treatment of each other, there was oppression of widows and orphans and the poor and taking advantage of them and dishonesty and deceit. In the international scene, they were looking to make alliances with other nations, which meant that they would also take on their forms of worship and their paganism, visibly seen in the practice of idolatry, which the Lord forbid, and they knew it, and we all know it. And now they are in exile in Babylon, and they are being disciplined And the discipline of the Lord is to purge them of their sin and to return them to reason. This is what the Lord says in Isaiah, Come, let us reason together. It's to turn them to the Lord God. Now, without denying any of this, in complete honesty and openness about their sin, the Lord, in the the passage today, speaks a message of grace his people. So I want you to listen for it as we stand together and read Isaiah 43 and part of 44. Let's stand together. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say, It is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. I am God. And henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea and path, and a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness, the rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me and jackals and ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. I give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I have formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob. But you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. And have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first fathers sinned. And your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams in the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. This is God's word for us. You may be seated. We should not think for a second that our gracious God and Heavenly Father overlooks sin. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that he disciplines his people so his people will share in his holiness And it tells us that his discipline is gracious because holiness is necessary to see the Lord. And he disciplines those whom he loves. God's grace abounds. And that message that's in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament is on display here in the Old Testament passage we're reading in Isaiah 43 and 44. The Isaiah promise of God's grace is ours today because we, by faith, are in Christ. Because Christ is our way into the promises of God. Christ is our way into the people of God. Christ is our way into right relationship with God. Romans Galatians, 2 Corinthians, all tell us that we are the spiritual descendants of Abraham by faith in Christ. And the promises of God are to us, yes, in Christ. What grace? This is all about God's grace. And what's the nature of God's grace? We could say so much about that. I just want to make three comments. Quick points to introduce to us the nature of God's grace before we get into the text. First, grace is from God to sinners. Grace runs one way. In human to human relationships, you know it's always a two way street. Grace runs one way from a holy God to sinners. God, He said in Isaiah 43 and 44, I am, I am the Lord, I am the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 6, holy, 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 God, unlike us, no shortcoming, no need, God, sinners, people, all of us, not just weak and needy, but actually asserting our self-will over him in rebellion. God. Saves sinners. That's grace. Favor is grace. Regard, God has regard on sinners. That's grace. God blesses in various ways. Wave upon wave of grace, the old Puritan prayer says that I read just a moment ago. Wave after wave, conviction of sin. Forgiveness of sin, reconciliation to God, ongoing growth in holiness, the power of the Holy Spirit. Every promise is a grace to us, sustaining grace to get us all the way home. God saves sinners. To bristle at this means we don't understand neither the nature of God or ourselves. But to understand the nature of God in ourselves means that the grace of God is of highest value to us. The nature of grace is that it comes from God to sinners. A second point would be this. God's grace toward sinners accomplishes God's purpose of glorifying His name. When God shows grace to sinners, as He is doing here in Isaiah 43, and all the New Testament tells us it's in Jesus Christ. As God shows grace to sinners, we read it from Ephesians chapter 1. It is to the praise of the glory of Of his grace, he is glorified by being gracious toward sinners. Another third point would be God's grace toward sinners is a witness to sinners. There's a perpetual nature of the witness of God's grace. As grace is shown to people who are sinners in active rebellion against God, and God sets his love on them and saves them by his grace, other people see that. And God uses that to open their eyes so that they too can be saved. God's grace toward Israel, beginning with his choice of Abraham, was like this. From God to Abraham, a sinner resulting in a nation to glorify God as a gracious God, to testify to the nations that God is God. Isaiah is pointing out here that Israel has violated this grace and failed in regard to her purpose as the people who have received God's grace. But in the fullness of time, God sent a covenant keeper. God sent a faithful one. His name is Jesus Christ, the one through whom the grace toward sinners was secured and revealed at the cross. So God's grace now toward all who believe in Christ Fulfills God's purpose of bringing glory to Himself and a witness to the nations. Grace. God's grace is towards sinners, making them His people. God's grace glorifies God as the holy and gracious God. God's grace towards sinners witnesses to other sinners that they might be saved by grace. Now we see this in Isaiah 43 and 44 because there's a back and forth nature. He speaks of grace. And then he declares a witness. It's back and forth. Now I'm going to give you the five points up front. I know that a lot of you are note takers, and I'm grateful for that. I appreciate that. I'm going to give it to you now because when I preach, I just like to go and you figure out where we are. So point one, God's grace, verses 1 through 7. Two, the witness of God's grace, verses 8 through 13. Point three, more grace toward his people. Verses 14 through 21. Number four, the witness against God's people for their sin. Verses 22 through 28. And then grace abounding all the more. Grace. I'll come back to those. I'll hit on them. You'll get them. But that's in chapter 44. Now, through it all, I hope you noticed as we were reading how many times the Lord said, I am God. I am he. Did you notice that? We'll come back to that too. But there's no confusion here about what's going on. No confusion about who God is. And he's driving that point home to these people in exile. And he says it boldly, no hesitation. He is God. Listen for that as we go through. Now, point number one, the grace of God toward his people. The passage opens that way, chapter 43, verses 1 through 7. Remember, they're in a desperate, depressing situation. They are filled with doubt and fear. They have been taken into exile. Now, I don't know if you've connected yet with the emotional impact, the psychological impact of being taken into exile, but if you read the book of Daniel, early in Daniel, it says that these Hebrew children in Daniel were taken into exile. They're in the same exile here. They're taken into exile, and they were taught a new language, new customs, a new culture, even even told to eat different food. It is a total disorientation that these people are in. Everything is new. They cannot worship as they once worshipped. They're in a desperate, depressing situation filled with doubt and fear. And into that, verse 1, thus says the Lord. The message of Isaiah is to these exiles. The Lord speaks. And he reminds them, I created you. Look at the words. I created you. I formed you. All things start with the Lord, built into the very nature of grace, is that God is the starting point. Really, this is a worldview in poetry. God created all. If we could get that one simple fact, God says, I created you. I formed you. That one simple fact, if we just get that at the start, so much would be cleared up. It is a comfort to these, to these people, but it is also a whole worldview in poetry here. What does he say? Fear not. I have redeemed you. Redemption. It's in Ephesians 1 that we read a moment ago. It's all through the Bible. It is, re, to be redeemed is to be secured in the salvation of God. It's to be set free, to be in freedom. It is to be brought into relationship with, with God at a cost, at something that cost God, purchased with a sacrifice, didn't cost us to be redeemed. It doesn't cost those who are redeemed. It costs the Redeemer. I redeemed you. I delivered you. I brought you to myself. I made you my own. Look what it says in verse 1. I called you by name. You are mine. You know what that means? It means that God named it and God claimed it. God can do that. We don't do that. The name it and claim it theology, we don't do it. God does it. He names and he claims his people. That means we have an identity. We have a belonging. We belong to God. By faith in Christ, we are in a covenant relationship with God. Fear not, he says, I have redeemed you. Church, this is God's grace. We're named. We're claimed by God. We have identity and belonging. This is to grip our hearts. This is to bring us to loyalty to Christ. We're to be shaped by this grace. Verse 2 When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. It's beautiful poetry. It's about trials and tribulations and testings and the journeys of dangers and threats and obstacles and the disciplines of the Lord, all seemingly impossible for us to pass through. But the Lord says, I'll get you through. You will endure because I'm with you. You will overcome. But it's also literal. It's literal. At the Exodus, they crossed the sea through the waters. They crossed the Jordan under Joshua. The three Hebrew children were delivered from a literal fiery furnace. The disciples were in a boat on the water as the storm tossed them, and Jesus said, peace be still. God gets his people through. It's grace, but we say, wait a minute. Didn't some of God's people actually die and get killed? I mean, Hebrews 11, we're talking a lot about Hebrews this morning. Hebrews 11 is that great chapter where people are said to have done things by faith. And it's very interesting because at the beginning, all these great things, people escaped stuff, they did stuff, they they conquered stuff, they had victory. But then you get to the end, it says others, others died. They were stoned. This is in Hebrews 11, by the way, sawn in two killed by the sword. There's a little phrase in there in Hebrews 11 that says they will rise again to a better life. God's grace keeps His people from the waters and the fires of judgment and ultimate death. Don't judge eternity by today. Don't look around today and say, oh, oh, God's people are suffering in Sudan. Therefore, God must not be able to save. No, don't judge eternity by today. Shape today by eternity. God will get his people through the waters, the fires, the trials, the tribulations, whatever it is, he will get us through. Shape your life by that promise. Order your life by the keeping grace of God. Set your sights on Christ and go with him. Verse 3, 4, he says, I'm going to do this for I am the Lord your God. I am the Holy One of Israel. I am your servant. This is because, and I don't want to move past this too quickly. At least seven times in this passage, at least seven times the Lord says, I am he. I am in some, in some form. And then <clears throat> over 20 other times in this section, he says what he has done and what he will do. The, the repetition is driving home the fact that every promise of God, every grace toward his people in the past and in the future is guaranteed By his being, by his nature, he is saying, I will do this because of who I am. God will not go back on his promise to keep his people. If he did, he would be denying his very self. He can't do that. We do not have absolute patterns in history to determine our future on earth we don't hebrews 11 some conquered some were killed history teaches us some general lessons but it does not promise the outcomes what we do have is the absolute promise about god's triumph the triumph of god's grace in the lives of his people What we do have is the absolute promise about the ultimate end that he will bring to pass because he is God. His being, his very being, is the basis of his securing and his delivering on his promises and on his purposes. That's what God is saying in Isaiah 43. Second part of verse 3, in their history, His sovereign grace was evidence of their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Verse 4, listen to this language. He says to them, this people of his, you are precious in my eyes. You are honored. I love you. This is what God says. This is what God says to his people. He said, I love you. Those are three words that some people still have a hard time saying. And God is not hesitant to speak directly to his people and say, you are precious. You are honored in my sight. I love you. I think of that when I think about the suffering and persecuted church of Christ around the world, and I wonder, Lord, do they know that you love them and that they are precious? It's a mystery, isn't it? Why? Why is God allowing his people to suffer as they do around the world? It is such a mystery. We have to entrust that, them, ourselves, to God and his wisdom, and his sovereignty, and the fact that somehow he is working for the glory of his grace. But in it all, we can be praying, God, how do we know this? How can your people be assured? They're honored. They're precious. They're loved. I hope you will remember that in your life. And you know, even in our lethargic state, the asleep church Plenty of discipline, plenty of scolding. You know know the Lord scolds. He's scolding here. Jesus, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, he rebukes his church. Plenty of discipline and rebuke for his church that is errant and wayward and lethargic, but loved, always loved. Always the church is precious to Christ. Always the church is honored. We're drawn by cords of grace. We're drawn by cords of love. If we want absolute consecration to God, if we want absolute commitment to Christ, if we want our whole being to be given over completely to God, It'll be because we're drawn by the cords of God's grace and of his love. God is drawing us to himself. Look at what he says about us. And then verses 5 through 7, in time. This is more. We're, we're just on point one, the grace. We're just wave after wave of grace. Verses 5 through 7, in time, he says, he will gather his people from all the corners. All the places of the exile he did under Cyrus, we're coming to that. Cyrus of Persia defeated the Babylonians, delivered, set God's people free, sent them back to Jerusalem. And he will again. He's doing it now. God is actively drawing people from all the corners of the earth. And someday the great sight will be a multitude around the throne of Christ to the praise of the glory of his grace. This is our ultimate purpose and it is our ultimate joy, created, redeemed, Seen through it all by grace for His glory. Do you see the grace of God today come to Christ? Second point in this passage is that God is giving a witness about Himself, a witness for God because of His grace. Verses 8 through 13. This is a witness of God, a witness to God and His power and His love and His grace because of His grace. The tone shifts here. The first verses were very comforting to God's people. Now the Lord is confronting And he's challenging. And he says in these verses, let the nations and their idols assemble before me. Come on, get them all together. And let the the idols and the nations prove, let the nations prove that their gods can do as I have done. What did God do? He says in these verses, he determined. He predicted. He carried out a plan to deliver a people for himself and to show his grace upon them. And God is saying in these verses, Israel is my evidence. Israel can testify that without any idols, without any help from anybody else, God alone planned, God alone declared, God alone saved a people. No one can turn back anything that God has done. In fact, God is the one who turned back the Egyptians And he will bring back his exiles. History does give a witness to the lordship of God. Now, Christians, church, how can we? How are we witnessing to God's grace? Witnessing to the lordship of God and his grace? Well, as Israel was supposed to do, mentioned in this chapter, they are to proclaim it. And then their lives were to give evidence of it. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians. He came to a a city, and he preached, he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then he proved its power in his life by living a life that showed God's grace. Jesus said it this way, Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works. Good works? Yes, the work of God's grace in the heart of people. And then glorify your Father who is in heaven, which is their purpose. God gets the testimony, the witness to God is that he shows his grace to his people. The third part of this passage is more grace. Grace again, verses 14 through 21. Here God gets very specific. If you'll look at verse 15, one more time he says, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King, This means his being is the very basis of his grace. Now, back up one verse, and he says, Babylon, the captor, is going to be brought down. And what does that mean? This is one of the ways God shows his grace. God can use a pagan nation to discipline his people, and then he can judge that nation for their sin against his people. And he can be right in doing it because he's righteous. And that's what he did in Babylon. That's how he saved his people. Verses 16 and 17, he did it in the Exodus. It's talking here about how the Lord made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters. The chariot, bring forth chariot and horse and army and warrior. And they're going to be extinguished and quenched. It happened at the Exodus. And it's going to happen again for these people in the exile. They're going to get back to Jerusalem. And God, verse 19, is doing a new thing. He is doing a complete thing in Christ. His grace towards sinners in Christ, verse 21, is going to declare his praise. All of the works of God declare his praise. His praise, which is the praise of the glory of his grace. Brothers and sisters, take time right now. And this week, take time to remember, take time to consider, take time to think about all the implications of this for our lives and for our congregation. We exist by grace. We exist by grace. I I don't know if you realize or even remember or not, but today is the 31st anniversary of Grace Community Church third Sunday of January. Half of you didn't know that, and that's just fine. Because we say in our history, yeah, well, we did this, we did that, we started here, we started there, we started there. But overshadowing all that, we exist by God's grace. A congregation and you as a Christian, you are here, you exist, you are created, you are formed. By God, for the purpose of God showering and showing His grace to you. You were saved by grace. Think of the implications of that. You will be sustained by grace. You will get where God wants you by grace. Think on that. Let that that just land on you to the praise of the glory of His grace. He says in verse 7, all the way back to verse 7, we were created for His glory. He says in verse 21, to declare his praise. This is the driving motivation of every Christian and of every congregation. Listen, there is no room for the seeking of two glories, God and ours. There's no room for that. There's only room for one glory, and that's God's glory. And that's why he has showered us with his grace. But that's not how Israel lived. They did not live for God's glory, which is the fourth point. This is a witness against them, against the people for their sin. Sin that was all the more grievous against the backdrop of God's creation, choosing, forming, choosing, setting his grace upon these people. Verse 22, he says, yet. Oh, the tone just changed again. He says, I formed you, verse 21, I, this people I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. And then verse 22, it just, the tone changes again, yet. Yet the people did not call upon the Lord. And then this is, this is a startling verse. It's just a mind-boggling verse. But you have been weary of me, O Israel. Think on that. May the weight of it land. You, O Israel. Okay, would you do me a favor right now? Would you just go back to verse 1 of chapter 43? Let's go back to verse 1. Now thus says the Lord who created you, who formed you, fear not, I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine now, now go back to verse 22 yet you did not call upon me O Jacob but you have been weary of me O Israel is it, is it landing on you what's happening here weary of God Weary of God's grace, weary of the truth, weary of the doctrines of God, the reality of the truth of God in the Bible, weary of that, weary of the disciplines of God. This is all grace. Weary of the disciplines of God to to purge our lives and to bring us to holiness, a holiness without which no one will see the Lord, weary of that. Weary of God's claim upon us, His commands and His ways. You become weary, he said, of this grace. This is happening today. It's happening. It is sad. It's called the deconstruction of faith. It's not enlightenment. It is not further light. Oh, further light so now we can undo and deconstruct. No, that's not what it is. And it's not ultimately a reaction against others who are in the church. It is ultimately weariness with God. This is what's happening. And this verse serves to awaken us, to awaken us to the possibility of someone becoming weary with God and to warn us against it. And it's designed to pull us back to God and His grace and to say yes to all of His grace and yes to all of His doctrines and yes to all of His disciplines and yes to His claims and His commands and His will His way. Yes to God. Verse 23, God said, I didn't burden you with impossible, arbitrary demands of sacrifices. These people were in exile. They couldn't sacrifice at this time. But verse 24, God said that the people have burdened him with their sin, their spiritual apathy. Listen, brothers and sisters, I know this is is not often a message that is spoken in evangelical churches today. But I'm going to say it because it's absolutely necessary. And it's this, proper self-examination is not sin and guilt fixation. Proper self-examination is not sin and guilt fixation. It is not poor self-esteem. Proper self-examination is the way into admission of sin and need of grace. It's the way into repentance and faith. And if you say, that's Old Testament stuff. No, how about read 1 Peter? How about read the book of James? How about read Paul in 1 Corinthians? Proper self-examination. is is the way into the admission of sin and the need of grace and repentance and faith. And confession at the foot of the cross of Jesus brings a flood, I mean a flood, a torrent of mercy and grace to a contrite heart. Run to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. A flood of mercy will come to you. But these people were weary of God. And this section in this chapter ends with these words. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me, and therefore I will profane the princes of your sanctuary and deliver you up to destruction and reviling. But what word comes after that? You think, oh, that's the end. No, don't close it there. Don't close it there. The oracle, I think, the oracle continues on into the next chapter. Where we read, the final point is all the more abounding grace. God is gracious toward sinners. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 44. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen, whom I formed, I formed from the womb. I will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant Jeshurun, that means righteous one, Whom I have chosen. This third wave of grace in our passage today, it nearly repeats chapter 43, verse 1. It's almost identical. Chosen, formed, fear not. And then verses 3 through 5 gives us some new aspect of God's grace for us to rejoice in. In chapter 43, verses 2 and 4, that grace there was grace, the grace of deliverance. I've delivered you. I've redeemed you. I've gotten you out of Egypt. I'm going to get you out of exile. I'm going to get you out of darkness. I'm going to get you out of sin. I've redeemed you. And we come to chapter 44, verses 3 through 5, and it's another aspect of God's grace, and it's the aspect of provision. Verse 3, he said, I will pour water on thirsty land and streams on a dry ground. Now, that's beautiful poetry, and certainly they've got to trek back through the desert to get back to Jerusalem. But then look what he says. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. This is the provision of God's grace. He gives the spirit. Living water poured out, poured into a parched soul. Praise the Lord. We have the Holy Spirit in us as a gift of God's grace. Ezekiel. And Joel prophesied about this. Here Isaiah is doing it. Act, Jesus said it was going to happen. Acts 2, it happened. The Holy Spirit has come. Verse 4 speaks of the nourishing growth from the Holy Spirit upon God's children. And then look what the result is. Verse 5, now if this, this speaks of grace. Verse 5, he says, this one will say, this one, who is this one? This one, this one who has been redeemed, this one who's been showered and lavished with wave upon wave of grace, this one who's been given the spirit of God by the grace of God, this one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. I, he, this one will say, I belong to the Lord and will say, I belong to the Lord's people and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Do you see what's happening there? The grace of God redeeming people, showering his favor upon them, saving them from their sins, filling them with the Holy Spirit, the grace of God results in these people identifying with the Lord and identifying with his people. And look at both of those, by the way, because there are many people today who will say, I like Jesus, I just don't like his people. That means you don't like yourself because you're his people. You don't say, I'm going to follow God and I'm not going to to do it with his people. The the effect of God's grace is that we say, I am the Lord's. I belong to the Lord and I take on the name of his people. I I am a part of the people of God. Church, brothers and sisters, spiritual renewal, revival, Reformation, whatever R you want to call it, comes by the effectual working of God's grace in our lives. So, today, correct, build, expand, understand the view, the biblical view of what God's grace is all about. Then, trust the Lord to save you. God will forgive you. His grace is sufficient to forgive you of your sins and to reconcile you to God. Come to Christ today. And then, trust Him to keep you. Every time you turn to Him, you're trusting Him to keep you. He'll get you through. Let's trust the Lord to get us through. It's His sustaining grace. And then, let's trust Him to flourish our lives, to cause our lives to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's it's His renewing grace. Let's pray and seek Him that He'll flourish our lives with the fruit of the Spirit. And then, let's pray for Grace Community Church to be renewed in this grace. And then, let's pray for a witness of this grace in our city, in Nashville, in this middle Tennessee region. And let's pray this for all the churches. Expand it to the churches that God's people would be renewed in His grace. Father in heaven, thank You for Your Word today.